This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Terbish, and this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here on Sirius XM. Today we're talking about cars and mobility. In the first half of the show, I talked with Barry Ratzlaff, who Vice President of Customer Satisfaction at Hyundai Motor America. At this point, it's my big pleasure of introducing my second guest today, Glenn DeVos, who is Chief Technology Officer and President of the Mobility and Services Group at Aptiv. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you very much. It's good to be here, Christian. Hey, Glenn, a personal question first. Do you like driving, or given the choice, would you prefer to have a fully <laughs> autonomous vehicle take over for you and you just basically take a nap? It depends what I'm doing. I actually do enjoy driving very much, uh, but I can tell you as I commute to work or to the airport, I would be very happy to be able to take a nap or get some work done. So depending on the time of day or what I'm doing, very different answer. Aptiv grew out of Delphi Automotive. Uh, Tell us about the company's journey. Yeah, we are actually, if you think about it, we were, you know, kind of the internal suppliers to General Motors over many, many years. And then in the late 90s, that that was aggregated into Delphi Automotive Components Group under under GM. And then that was spun out in 99 as Delphi. And then since then, we've really separated ourselves, if you will, from being that captive supplier to GM to supplying basically every automotive OEM in the industry now. And, and now, uh, as of December of last year, we uh, became active as we spun out the powertrain division to really focus in on electrical architecture, and then uh, compute and software. And you had some pretty remarkable acquisition and partnerships since, right? You acquired uh, Newtonomy, I think, and you're partnering with Lyft now. Can you elaborate a little bit more on those? Sure. We, uh, at Aptiv and, and Delphi before that, we've had a, a good history of strategic investments, both from kind of a bolt-on type of investment like Hellman Titan, and where we just basically add to the portfolio or build the portfolio. But then more recently, more in the technology space, uh, starting in 2015 with Automatica, which was the automated driving spin-out from Carnegie Mellon. And then uh, here more recently, back in November, the acquisition of Newtonomy, which is the automated driving spin-out really from MIT. Both of those were to help us build out our, our capabilities, both from a portfolio standpoint, but also from a personnel standpoint, to position ourselves for automated driving. And... That is in part why companies like Lyft look at Aptiv as a as a really an interesting partner to work with. Our vehicles on the road, driving in Vegas, are a direct result of those investments and those acquisitions. Now, the value proposition of Aptiv is in many ways to basically have a mobility platform that could be then sold to OEMs who just plug it in and make their vehicles autonomous. Um, is, is that right? It's, it's kind of basically imagine this as a component, as a, as a subsystem that I could just put into if I'm a BMW or if I'm no matter which big car company is uh, in the world, and my vehicle would then basically, you guys would take care of the headaches that come with the autonomy? Well, it's, it's a little bit like that. In fact, that's what you just described is what I would call a more traditional approach to business where we sell enabling technologies to the OEMs, the automotive OEMs, like the BMWs, for example. Um, Over the recent years, that's changed a little bit. We're doing more about systems integration for those OEMs, bringing technologies in, but also then working closely with them as they integrate those technologies into their vehicle platforms. 
So it's a collaborative effort with those OEMs, especially when you're talking about technologies like automated driving. What's changed here recently, though, is as the mobility-on-demand market, and in particular the automated mobility-on-demand market has been developing over the last three, four years, it's brought a whole new group of customers into Aptiv's into Aptiv's uh, range, and and that's customers like the ride-hailing networks, like Lyft and others, or like governments like Singapore, where we're operating, where we can sell solutions to them directly, working with OEM partners and other ecosystem partners. So it really, uh, the, the landscape has really changed quite a bit for us here over the past several years. If we focus on the OEMs for a moment, and, and you mentioned this idea of systems mm-hmm. integration, I remember uh, when, when BMW, I spent some time with BMW many years ago, and I remember when things like the car phone came about, and it was very easy to integrate. Basically, you just plug in the box and you have a car phone, right? Uh, clearly, a complex system with with sensors everywhere, computing devices, uh, connections and ultimately to the, the steering, the drivetrain, the braking is, is, is just much more of an integral system. Um, can you give us a sense of how that impacts the architecture of the, um, of the overall vehicle, how much you need to coordinate with the OEMs as opposed to providing a turnkey solution where you just put in a box in a car and the car is autonomous? Yeah, it really is an integral part of the vehicle architecture. If you think about many of the cars that are out there today, the automated driving cars, whether it's from Waymo or Uber or, or Aptiv, we refer to those as bolt-on systems where you basically add all of the automated driving technology to an existing vehicle and to its existing architecture. It's almost, you can think of it as redundant. As you think long-term, though, and, and working with the OEMs, we're really looking at much more integrated solutions where the technology, the the, all of the on-vehicle compute sensors and, and software are much more integrated into the vehicle architecture. And as you say, that does demand some significant changes to that architecture. You need to have redundancy and fail-safe operational capability. So that means different power architectures. You're moving massive amounts of data around the car from these sensors. So that requires a whole new level of com- uh, communication and networking in the vehicle, getting up to many gigabits per second. And you're really looking at just a incredible amount of compute to support the automated driving functions. So that means re-architecting how the vehicle supports that those compute needs. And so it is a uh, it is a significant re-architecting of vehicles to get to a, a level four or level five automated state. And and that's a big part of what we what we do with those OEMs. We work with them on what that architecture needs to look like, and then help provide uh, some of the technologies to make it happen. So people oftentimes use these terms level one to five, with five being me sleeping behind the wheel, basically. Can you, mm-hmm. can you just review the, the, the level one to five te- technology or terminology for our listeners? Yeah, as you think about it, level one are some you know, really basic active safety features that, don't, you know, that, that, that really don't control the car per se. As you get to level two, that's where you get into where the car can take over in certain limited circumstances, like... AEB or emergency braking or lane keep assist and those types of functions. At level three, that's where the car actually takes more control, and it doesn't rely on the driver to essentially re-engage. In other words, the car has to be able to manage the situation on its own with the possibility that the driver may not re-engage. And that's, an, that's a really incredible point because that's, that's where you transition over from 
the driver always being in control and basically always being relied upon to ensure safe operation of the vehicle and to where the car is now responsible for, for doing just that and, and, and really having fail operational and safe stop capability. Level four is where you get into full autonomy, but within limitations. In other words, it may not manage all roadways or all, all areas that you can drive on. It may not manage all weather conditions, things like that. And it's still compatible with a driver taking over and, and actually driving the car. And then ultimately level five is where you get to the state where the car is able to navigate basically anywhere, anytime on its own. And it's at that point that we typically think about taking out steering wheels and, and basically driver control. The car would be fully in control in that time and able to navigate any situation. So what is the biggest technical challenge at the moment that you guys face? Is there like one, I mean, I'm sure there are many challenges, but is there one that yeah. you would find is a bottleneck that is holding you kind of back from moving up that ladder? Yeah, there's. I would say there's, there's probably three or four significant challenges still. The first I would say is perception. And what I mean by that are the perception systems or the sensors that you put on the car, which controls the ability of the car to see its environment. Um, We believe that you need radar, LIDAR, and vision systems. And, and vision being very mature, radar being mature, LIDAR not as mature, fairly, fairly new for automotive. But even with all three of those sensors, to be able to see you know, accurately around the vehicle and at distance, for instance, highway speeds, you need to have a, another generation of sensors that really have more capability. So how well you see or how well you perceive the environment around you is a limitation on, on your system, no matter how good it might be. And so that's, that's one boundary condition or one challenge that we face is to get the best sensors possible. The second is just in terms of training the systems and in making sure the systems are able to manage all situations, both, both I would say, from a technical standpoint as well as from what we call a social standpoint, vehicles being able to interact with other vehicles, whether they're automated or manually driven, and really understanding how the vehicle should perform in all of those edge cases. That's, that is a, there's significantly more work to be done there in, in terms of getting these systems to where they can get to a level five performance capability. And then the third, the third area I would point to is regulatory. We're still, you know, the technology is in many ways out in front of the regulations, which, which is not uncommon, but it creates a certain amount of uncertainty as to how these systems are going to be able to be used or implemented in the field. So the regulatory environment is one that we, we spend a lot of time on working with bodies such as NHTSA and their equivalents in, in other countries. And then the final piece, I would say, is consumer acceptance. There's a lot of uncertainty around, you know, well, what is it going to be like to have automated vehicles and a lot of unknowns. And, and in the face of that unknown and those uncertainties, You know, it's, it's, you have to work extra hard to make sure that consumers feel comfortable and enjoy the experience of being in an in a automated car. And that's a big part of why we do the pilots we do is to really understand that last dimension of consumer acceptance. Now, one puzzle I have with autonomous driving is, is somehow the risk-taking, right? That as a driver, if I pull into uh, out of my driveway into a busy road, I anticipate somebody slowing down for me. That person might be pissed off, right? They might not like it. They might honk. But I want to get on the road, and I pull out. Uh, I could see yeah. an autonomous vehicle basically being smarter than I am or maybe more risk-averse and just standing there for hours. Uh, so, so how do you teach a vehicle to become 
I mean, not like a human. We don't want it like a human. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to train that thing. But how to to make this decision that is kind of both social, cultural, uh, but ultimately uh, a risk-reward trade-off? Yeah, that's a great question because that, that kind of gets to that whole socialization aspect and the social behavior of the vehicle. Because we, we do want the vehicles to drive first in a safe manner, always always being safe, but then also in a, in a human-like manner, a, a natural feeling to the vehicle so that people that are in the vehicle, you know, feel comfortable and confident that the that the car knows what it's doing. That's and so the this, the use case that you are describing is which is a very common one, whether it's merging or pulling into traffic, is one where you really need a combination of things. One is like I mentioned earlier, very good perception, so you can see what the cars are doing, and not just where they are, but but are they accelerating, decelerating, how are they behaving, and then as the vehicle initiates its behavior. You can monitor the reaction of the world around it, and you can see is the car making way for it, or is it is that other car accelerating, trying to cut you know cut you off, prevent you from actually turning in front of them? And so we can detect exactly what those cars are doing and develop what's called the semantic understanding of the scene or the environment around the vehicle. And then based on that, we then apply and, and plan out the trajectory, the path of that car. Now. Your point about the you know heavy traffic and and you know is the car going to be stuck there, and that and that's that's a scenario where when we look at you know at least for these initial deployments of automated vehicles, we're always looking at the routes these vehicles take and and how we avoid those types of situations. And so, as we as we plan out the geofenced areas where these cars will initially operate, you know those are some of the factors that we take into account. Is the car, its current capability, going to be able to navigate that successfully or not? Does it need some type of an aid? You know, do you always need to make sure that you're pulling out where there's a light so that traffic can be stopped effectively? But, um, but those are the exact use cases that we're, we're studying and refining, you know, basically as we speak. And for after Vegas, uh, Singapore, Pittsburgh, Boston, these are really great, uh, really great environments for us to do that kind of testing. Are you calibrating the algorithm based on how humans behave in the decision situation? Because you could one way might be to just basically run some form of big data model, kind of big, uh, big neural network mm-hmm. over my driving decisions of when I make decisions to brake or accelerate. The other one might be more less bottom up driven by my data might be more top-down based on some rational decision-making approach. Is is, is it a blend of both, or do you try to be entirely top-down and just say, like, Christian, I mean, there's no point replicating your emotions in the car. Uh, The car should drive and be safe as opposed to replicating what you, as a bad driver, do all the time. Yeah. Yeah, we actually do both. Um, It's it's a combination of the top-down, which we refer to as the rule book, or basically the the guiding principles yeah. that we want the car to always obey. And then a bottoms up, which is more of the AI or the neural network approach where you can train, given a certain situation, you can train the car to behave in the way you want it to behave, to feel more natural for those for those scenarios. And it's not unlike the way we learn to drive. If you think back to when you got your driver's license, there was a certain amount of formal training, certain rules that are in place, and you never want to violate, 
And then there, you know, and these are, you know, breaking distances and, and things like that, how far away you want to stay away from other objects. And these things can be defined very definitively and very quantitatively. And then we can apply certain weights to them to say, you never violate this, or you can, uh, you know, we give it a weighting or a, some type of a factor. And that is where you start replicating human judgment, if you will. And then we use from the ground up the more of the neural net approach or the AI approach to then train the system to recognize these scenarios and to understand what it, what it, what it should do, but always within the context of this rule book. So we provide a what we call a deterministic framework within which the system can operate. And then by doing so, we balance the safety and the safe operation piece with the performance and the natural fill piece. Glenn, we talked a lot about the uh, solution technology at the moment. Uh, what is really the main user need for this autonomous driving? Is it um, a convenience story? Is this, uh, I mean, there are 35,000 traffic fatalities in the U.S. I'm always wondering why there's not much more of a public outcry on this. We're basically sacrificing yeah. so many lives. There's basically a war out there on our roads, killing 35,000 Americans every year, way mm -hmm. more than in other civilized countries. Um, or is it is it a money story where we're basically saying, well, look, let's get rid of the cab drivers and the truck drivers and basically save some money here? Um, what is the, what is the big user need that you're ultimately after? Well, it's really it's really both. If you think about it, first and foremost, we view automated driving with an active as as really the you know the end state for the advanced safety systems, our ADAS business. And so as we look at it, we've been. We've been doing active safety systems now since the late 90s. And as we look at that, one of the things we really focus on are, are the safety benefits, both in terms of accident reduction and then ultimately fatality reduction. I, I agree with you. When you think about the number of fatalities and accidents and the societal cost associated with that, it's staggering. And we're always advocating for wider deployment and implementation of these active safety systems, which just help manually driven cars and human driven cars do better and avoid these accidents. And so we're very pleased as that, as consumer awareness and as OEM, as OEM deployment of active safety systems increase, we're starting to see the numbers now coming back and, and they, they really are effective. And so that's the first thing I would say, it's really about safety. Now, in this case, there's a strong economic drive for it as well. And that comes out of the commercial mobility on demand market where Basically, taking out the cost or the, the driver makes it much more cost-effective to provide the service, but it also uh, allows the network operators to free up that asset to be used more effectively. So while we don't ever expect you know, all of the mobility-on-demand or ride-hailing networks to convert over to automated mobility-on-demand vehicles, a port, you know, we see a portion of their fleets doing just that to allow them to really optimize And that's the economic that's the economic incentive. So you have a strong economic pull for the technology, but then you have a really just a really strong societal benefit and safety pull from the broader consumer market to in as quickly as possible migrate it over to the to the retail or the privately owned vehicles. The key there is we need to drive the cost down so people can actually afford it. As an economic as an economic incentive for ride hailing. That's a much different model, you know, and, and there's a lot more. Uh, you can afford a lot more technology to go into the car than typically the cars you and I would buy. 
And so that's what we're working very hard on is how do we drive that cost of these systems down. So just like active safety systems, they can be broadly deployed for personal ownership vehicles. So my question on the key user need is, is, is really has to be stratified by, by market segments with kind of the mainstream market, the consumer market being one thing, and then the commercial yep. market, professional market, where the kind of the efficiency, getting rid of the driver in the profit equation is, 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 is more prominent of an issue. Um, let, let's stay with that professional market, uh, like an Uber, you've worked mm -hmm. with Lyft. Um, if you just run through the economics there, um, a vehicle, uh, a cab vehicle in New York, I, I mean, the, the, the medallion costs have plummeted, but I think we're still talking about two, three hundred thousand dollars um, $300,000. So there is a lot, a lot of capital in each, each of one of these cabs. How much capital would you need to put into a cab, say, in 2020 to make it uh, semi-autonomous? I shouldn't say use the semi-autonomous, maybe a level four car. Yeah. Well, typically, as we look at, at 2020, and, and I would say it's really the early 20s, so if you think about the period of 2020 through 2022 or three, you're still talking about a substantial amount of technology going into those cars, probably somewhere between 50 and 75,000 per vehicle of added technology, sensors, compute, software, um, all of the things that you would need to add to that vehicle. So it's, it's still a significant amount. However, when you think of the operating cost structure of that of that commercial vehicle, that investment is is you know very quickly paid off, and so that's that's where the incentive comes or the strong pull comes from uh, from that marketplace. And as volumes rise, we know that's where companies like Aptiv are very good at then driving down that incremental cost. So the incremental cost, uh, I mean, the, the investment cost, you're $50,000 to $75,000. Basically, if you're looking at a, a cap, a shared cap, a robocap, uh, that thing pays back for itself within within a year or two, right? Correct. And that's, a, that's the additional incremental cost on top of the vehicle cost. And so, you know, obviously there's other operating costs that you have to consider as part of the model, but effectively, you're right. It pays. It's a. It's a very. It's a very uh, short payback for that. And then, when you factor in asset utilization and the fact that you can run that asset now, much more, much more consistently, and you know more hours per day, it it means that you have a uh, a better return on that investment. The other thing, I, I guess, uh, is a more macro perspective where we're not just looking at the, the vehicle. Autonomous is really misleading, right, because it's, it's autonomous in the sense it can drive itself, but it's not autonomous. It should be part of a bigger system, namely the city around it. And you mentioned the work that you've done with, with, with Singapore. It strikes me that the vehicle is really part of a bigger ecosystem and needs some kind of general control from 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 the big system so can you talk a little bit about the, that additional gain in efficiency that you get by connecting whole fleets of cars to each other yeah that, that's a great point because if, if you think about these these uh, automated mobility on demand or um, these mobility fleets it, it you're actually you're actually uh, spot on they have to be deployed and controlled so that they can be basically pre-staged to serve their customers as effectively as possible. And that's true whether it's a mobility on demand service or it's a first mile, last mile type of solution, which is what we're working on with Singapore. 
where they're trying to get people from the office into the mass transit systems and then from the station to their home and, and vice versa. And so what that requires is a complete ecosystem around those vehicles that manages the deployment and ongoing operation of the vehicle. We, we refer to that within our parlance as our, as our mobility services platform, which allows us to not only know where the vehicles are, but route the vehicles, control those vehicles, understand how those vehicles are performing, if a vehicle needs help or, or not, and basically uh, make sure that they're, they're really, that entire fleet is being used in a optimal fashion. And if you expand from, you know, if you think about one fleet requiring that, and if you expand the, the thought process to uh, an entire metropolitan area, you would really want to be coordinating across types of services and different fleets, whether it's, you know, waste removal or transit or logistics. And you really want to make sure all of those are cl- closely coordinated to avoid congestion and really optimize the routing. And, and that gets to that whole um, need to coordinate at a, at a municipality level. Talk a little bit more about the role of the municipality because, I mean, when you look at most mass transit systems, they are not privately owned, but they're owned by municipalities. Uh, mm-hmm. Yet uh, a lot of the kind of autonomous driving initiatives are coming from the Ubers, the Lyfts, and other systems. Do you, do you see the municipalities in the long term being your main customer? No, I think it will still be a combination, but I would tell you that that they do need, whether it's the ride-hailing networks and the municipalities, will need to work closely together. Um, you know, if you think about uh, most municipal or public transportation systems, they're running at, uh, at a loss, and, you know, they're really – what we're trying to do is help them get more ridership onto those networks, not less, and, and optimize their capacity management. And so as we've approached it, and, and one of the things that we've learned with Singapore and Las Vegas and, and Boston, working with those municipalities, is that done correctly, you can service both the needs of the ride-handling network or the mobility-on-demand networks, as well as the public transportation networks. Isn't but the best-case scenario is when they're working closely together. Isn't it frustrating that that's ultimately a problem, though, that you can never solve in the sense that the more you avoid the traffic jams, the longer will people want to commute and live out in a further away from work, and the traffic jam just always comes back. Isn't that a problem that is just frustrating ultimately? Yeah, there's, you know, it, that's, a, that's a great point. In fact, you know, that's, you, you do have to always kind of think a couple steps ahead to make sure that you're not creating unintended consequences and that you're, um, you're enabling, you know, you're, you're fitting within a, a larger city plan or a regional plan. And, and then that's where I will give, you know, cities like Singapore or areas like Singapore a lot of credit because they're thinking about automated mobility on demand and automated public transportation services as part of a larger city plan and what they're trying to do with their whole cities in, in terms of serving underserved areas and bringing and getting people to use their existing mass transit infrastructure more effectively. So it, you know, it is important. You don't let, you know, just the technology lead you down a path where there's unintended consequences. And, and again, I think back to your point, that's where the cities play such an important role. And, and it's been very, for us in particular, working with the city of Boston, working with the regional transportation commission in Las Vegas, 
um, you know, working with other municipalities, it's been very helpful to understand, you know, how do we use the technology, not just for mobility on demand networks, but also to help address city services. Says Glenn DeVos, uh, Chief Technology Officer and President of the Mobility and Services Group Adaptives. Thank you so much, Glenn. I'm Christian Tevish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.